everybody, we'd like to invite you to visit South Dakota through the eyes of local Lou. She'll take you on a tour of lots of things to see and do. So enjoy your virtual visit through the eyes of local Lou. Welcome to the Local Lou Podcast. I'm so glad you found me. Did you hear? We have an amazing theme song. Brand new, hot off the press. So I hope you guys liked it. So we have three really interesting historical markers to cover today. Uh, They are all in Canton. And I call them tic-tac-toe because they're all in a row on a little stretch of desolate highway just on the edge of Canton. Three markers really in the middle of nowhere, but meaning something important to discuss. Unfortunately, some of the topics are best covered by people, you know, that know what they're talking about. (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and read the historical markers to you and provide some links to interesting information and conversations before we launch into that. Reminder, I am local Lou and I am not a professional historian. (laughs) I am interested in knowing more about the place I live. So I read historical markers and do my best to look up information that pops out to me. And I want to share it with you. I'm active on Instagram and I will post links on Facebook. If you have any critiques on the podcast, let me know what I can do to make this podcast better and keep on keeping on. So my time in isolation has started to make me nostalgic. For recent experiences. Last fall, I made a trip to Blue Mound State Park uh, in Laverne, Minnesota. On the way through Laverne, I like to stop at Take 16 Brewery, get a couple growler refills, and this time I saw the Rock Valley Historical Society right across the street. There are so many stories to go into about my visit there, and I strongly encourage a visit if you happen to find yourself in Laverne. Once life starts to maintain again, I guess. But the biggest puzzle piece to that experience was the caretaker. This amazing woman was worth every second of every visitor's time. I spent so much time at the Rock Valley Historical Society and Museum just milling around so I could hear her talk. Her name was Betty. Betty Mann is a fixture in that historical society and national treasure in and of herself, if you ask me. I knew her but one afternoon, but I love and appreciate her and wish her nothing but the best to her and her family because she's amazing. And if you walk into that place, oh, it's such a joy. (laughs) If she's there, it's amazing. Have her tell you stories about her collections. Uh, Her zest for history and collecting is infectious. The best thing about Betty is all I knew about her was her name was Betty. (laughs) She's very unassuming and she should be known and loved and appreciated for all the work that she does. She's really cool. The Rock Valley Historical Society has a great museum. What I really miss is this room that they had full of binders of newspaper clippings, all organized by um, topic or state or by newspaper or year. And I really just yearn for this right now. I need it in my life. I remember paging through so many binders with no real intent. And one particular thing that I came across resonated with me, talking about women's suffrage uh, in like the 1890s, you know, decades before we got the right to vote. And it just made me think how these people, these women, but but also people um, in the Midwest were just really cool standing up for themselves and things that they believed in or 
visions that they had of what the future could be. And I find that really, really cool. Um, my research these days is severely lacking in all this hands-on newspaper clippings, uh, newsreel films, that smell of a public library. And I know being solely reliant on the internet and the few local history books I have is not doing you the service that you deserve, but we'll get back there. Until then, wash your hands, wear a mask, and stay safe. Let's get started, guys. Historical marker number 555. Canton Ski Hill. Interest in a ski hill in the Canton area began in 1911 when a young student from Norway, Lundvig Hoiby, gave a skiing expedition to a group of Canton students. By 1912, enough interest had been aroused to clear a hill two miles east of Canton, and a tournament was conducted. From the platform to the peak of the hill to the landing place was a drop of nearly 275 feet, and a skier covered a distance of almost one-eighth of a mile at a speed from 60 to 100 miles per hour. Tournaments were held again in 1915 and 1917, but waned during the First World War. Another tournament was held in 1920. In 1925, the National Ski Tournament was held on the Canton Ski Hill, and among the list of notable entries were members of the United States Olympic team. The National Championship, the winner of the 1925 International Meet at Gary Illinois in the holder of the world distance record. Two local boys placed during the tournament of 1925 in the boys class B event leaping 51 and 53 feet. Leif Knudsen placed second in the same event. Canton was host to approximately 5,000 fans. Tournaments subsided in the early 30s when insufficient funds and lack of snow made any large-scale tournaments almost impossible until 1935 when the National Ski Tournament was again held on the Canton Slope. In this tournament, Jimi Hendrickson of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, was signed to represent Canton. He was the champion of Class B and an Olympic ski member. Siergard Knudsen, secretary of the local Sioux Valley Ski Club, was president of the National Ski Association that year. Over 100 ski stars entered the 1935 tournament, and about 6,000 fans attended. Cash receipts taken in the first afternoon were about $4,000. The last tournament held on the Canton Ski Slope was a Central United States Ski Tournament in 1936. Sierger Knudsen signed a 17-year-old boy from Chicago, Paul Boletto, to wear the Sioux Valley colors. With the hill in perfect skiing condition, 15,000 people attended, and Alf Engren jumped 191 feet, only three feet short of the record set at Salt Lake City. Bidelow won the C division with a 184-foot jump. After 1936, the tournaments again subsided due to lack of snow and a windstorm on June 24, 1944, blew the old ski slide down. The top of the slide was entirely broken and the pieces scattered away. Heavy wire cables, which held the slide, were broken and one was completely torn away. The ski slide was never rebuilt. Historical marker number 555, erected in 1992, location Lincoln County, two miles east of Canton. 
The ski jump was constructed in 1912 and by 1925 was hosting national ski tournaments with huge crowds, possibly 5,000 people or more. And what I can't wrap my head around is with news moving so slow, at least in comparison to the instant communication I've lived with my entire lifetime, how did all these people find out about this event? From there, how did they all get here? Did did porta potties exist? Where did everybody pee? <laughs> I'm chronically forgetting to pee before I leave the house, and in 2020, you know, that isn't that risky. But in 1925, what's the plan, guys? The Canton Ski Hill was the canvas for the 1932 Winter Olympics Ski Finals, Ski Jump Finals. The 1932 Winter Olympics were held in Lake Placid, New York. I found out that the two-man bobsled was new to the 1932 Olympics, and I've always really enjoyed bobsledding, pretty much since I saw Cool Runnings. Four-man bobsled, though, had already been the, in the Olympics since 1924, and and personally, I find four man bobsled to be even more exciting. Uh, just the idea of getting four people to do the right thing at the right time and work together, but separately is kind of impossible in my brain. Kasper Oyman is a Norwegian transplant to the Minot, North Dakota region, and he came in fifth place in the 1932 Olympics. The most intriguing part of Kasper's life story to me is the fact that it seems his citizenship paperwork was possibly what prevented him from competing in the 1928 Olympics. And while I don't know much about ski jumping, it does seem like the younger you are, the better chance you have at performing. And thus, if he came in fifth place in 1932, I feel he would have had an amazing chance at the podium in 1928. Uh, the ski jump from the pictures that I've seen and will share uh, with you guys on Instagram and Facebook, uh, along with links uh, to PBS and news clips that tell the story well about this ski jump, uh, it was no joke. Obviously, being used for so many competitions and clubs and, you know, things uh, around the Olympics, had to be pretty, pretty cool. Uh, the scope, the size of the drop, it seems pretty intense. And I applaud that some college kids being interested in skiing created a 30-year structure that brought tourism to our area. Uh, none of my hobbies have ever put off enough enthusiasm to erect decade-long structures. So there's that. Unfortunately, the structure disintegrated over time, fell into disrepair, and ultimately was torn down. So the only vestige of it is this historical marker on the side of the road. I find it really interesting that the historical marker notes like the exact date of this storm that created this structural problem. And it can't, I can't help but think of Back to the Future, Save the Clock Tower. Like, so if somebody has a Delorean, um, I guess, you know, if you think you go ahead and go back to June 24th, 1944 and make sure that the ski hill is okay, that'd be, that'd be pretty cool because I would have liked to have seen it. I think it would be neat to see it in person, although I believe it's on private land. So I guess I wouldn't have seen it in person even if it existed today, but I could have zoomed in really well with my camera. All right, let's wave goodbye to historical marker number 555. Whoa. 555 fun. Okay. Let's wave goodbye to historical marker number 555. Done and on to the next one. Historical marker number 
Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians. Receiving congressional appropriations in 1899, the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians was the second federal mental hospital and the first dedicated to American Indians. The first patient arrived in 1902, and through 1934, more than 370 patients, ages 2 to 80, from 50 tribes nationwide, lived there. Patients did domestic and agricultural works on site, were occasionally shown to pain visitors, and underwent treatment with methods later deemed outdated and dehumanizing. From 1929 to 1933, federal inspectors found intolerable conditions, inadequate staffing, several sane patients kept by force, and numerous other abuses. In 1933, John Collier, the newly appointed commissioner of Indian Affairs, ordered the asylum closed. G.J. Mowen, with the Canton Chamber of Commerce, filed an injunction to keep asylum open, but it was overturned in federal court. Many patients were discharged, and those who still needed care went to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, Washington, D.C. The major buildings used by the asylum have since been demolished. The Hiawatha Asylum Cemetery, where at least 121 patients were buried in unmarked graves, is located between the 4th and 5th fairways of the Hiawatha Golf Club. In 1998, the cemetery was listed in the National Register of Historic Places. Historical marker 708, erected in 2011, location Canton, South Dakota. Highway 18, west of 483rd Avenue. American histories can sometimes be disappointing, and it's easy to judge history sitting in the present with full 2020 vision. And I don't mean the year. There are a lot of different angles and perspectives on the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians, and I decided to go into a doctor from St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., Dr. Samuel A. Silk, a psychiatrist that took a few different trips to the asylum and presented reports on the conditions there. And those reports helped close it up. Uh, The fact that when the Hiawatha Asylum closed, 64 Native American Indians were then transferred to the St. Elizabeth's uh, in Washington, D.C., a.k.a. his facility, could make his reports a little cloudy in some ways. After reading his reports, he does seem genuine, but I don't know his intent. How frightening, though, for the patients, the families, to have a loved one in the asylum, and then the asylum closes, and they're shipped off across the country in a time where there's no affordable access to them. Like, how do you contact them? How do you how do you visit? And it's in a time of a, a Great Depression. I just don't, I don't understand how those 64 people, those human beings felt, but I also don't understand how their family felt. It must have been a very difficult time. Dr. Silk was sent by the superintendent of St. Elizabeth's Hospital to view the conditions of the Hiawatha Asylum. In March of 1929, he traveled to Canton to see how the Asylum for Insane Indians was being operated. And I will say that I like the fact um, Dr. Silk in 1929 spent six days at the asylum reviewing it. He compiled a 100-page report on the asylum, specifically honing in on its mismanagement by Dr. Hummer. Dr. Hummer ran the asylum from 1908 until he was dismissed in 1933. A place of padlocks and chamber pots, Dr. Silk said, to describe the facility. 
and his report ultimately said that the conditions at the facility were intolerable. Uh, But the food was okay, so they had that going for them, which is nice. Also in 1929, in that report, when he said he was giving his recommendations, he said, quote, fire extinguishers should be removed from locked closets and placed in hallways so they can be seen and used in an emergency, end quote. Dude. In September 1933, Dr. Silk came back to the asylum. Uh, This time he stayed for 21 days. And during that time, he observed that the conditions were very similar to 1929. A large number of patients showed no sign of mental illness. So that, you know, sort of makes me want to throw up because I'm not hiding my opinion. Like, super great. But my feelings are best summed up by a press release I read from the Department of the Interior that stated, A score of perfectly sane Indians are being confined in an institution in Canton, South Dakota, as a result of the greed and selfish inhumanity of certain interests there. End quote. Fancy word warning. Asylum. An institution offering shelter and support to people who are mentally ill. To use that word in a sentence... The Hiawatha Asylum was not a very good asylum. All right, let's wave goodbye to historical marker number 708. Done, and on to the next one. Historical marker 661. Augustana was founded as Augustana Seminary in Chicago in 1860 by the Scandinavian Evangelical Lutheran Augustana Synod. The school's purpose was to educate young men for the holy ministry in the Lutheran Church and to prepare young men for the profession of teaching. Attracted by a generous land offer from the Illinois Central Railroad, Augustana moved to Paxton, Illinois in 1863, then to Marshall, Wisconsin in 1869. With the westward migration of many Norwegians during the Dakota boom, the school moved again to northwest Iowa at Beloit in 1881. Growing enrollment and the offer of a three-story building by the citizens of Canton led to the academy moving to Canton in 1884, while the seminary remained in Beloit until 1890. President Anthony C. Tuve, 1890 through 1916, organized the Augustana College Association in 1895 to support the school. Distinguished alumni, including novelist Ole E. Rolvig, physicist Merle A. Tuve, and South Dakota Governor Sigurd Anderson and Archie Gubbard. In 1917, the newly formed Norwegian Lutheran Church in America voted to merge Augustana College and the Lutheran Normal School in Sioux Falls and to close the Canton campus. In 1919, the church reopened the institution at Canton with the name of Canton Lutheran Normal School, which later became Augustana Academy and operated as a high school of the Lutheran Church. The Augustana Academy Association was formed in 1932 and assumed control of the school until its closing in 1971. The old main building of the academy is an excellent example of Richardson Romanesque architecture, with its massive scale, rock-cut granite, and arched openings. Designed by Oemme and Thoy of St. Paul, it is a four-story building, 104 feet long and 60 feet wide. Having received pledges totaling $10,000 from Augustana College Association members and $5,000 from the Synod of the United Norwegian Lutheran Church, ground was broken in the late summer of 1901. Actual construction began the next year and the building was dedicated on October 4th, 1903. The old main housed classrooms, 
offices, 25 dormitory rooms, a gymnasium, and a chapel that would seat around 500 people. Total cost of the structure with furnishings was $48,592.99. Augustana Academy was closed in 1971 and the total renovation of the building was completed in 1995 by the Metro Plains Corporation of St. Paul. It now houses 21 one-bedroom apartments and five two-bedroom apartments. Historical marker 661, erected 1995, located east of Canton. Did you guys recognize some names from this historical marker that are similar to ones in historical marker number 78 about Canton, South Dakota? I feel like they like to note their notable natives. We have a couple repeats here. We have Ole E. Rolveg, the novelist that we heard about previously in historical marker number 78, who was a novelist, a teacher, and most importantly, a Norwegian immigrant. He came to America in 1896 when he was 20 years old, and his most notable book, Giants in the Earth. One of the passions that he had was educating immigrants on the importance of retaining their customs, both for their own good, but for also the good of the great American melting pot. And I think that's a great and wonderful stance to take, especially at that time, with a lot of cultural assimilation, like full cultural assimilation going on, which is a loss for everybody involved. I've never moved to a new country, and furthermore, I've never moved to a new country in the 1800s. I have no idea what that would be like. I do feel like the fact that the Dakota Territory were a landing place for so many Scandinavians, it may have helped to insulate some of their culture from completely evaporating. Also, since this is the second time that we've heard about Rolveg and this book, Giants in the Earth, I feel like I should probably read it. So I'm going to ask my mom if she has it. It feels like a book that she would have somewhere like in her house right now that she could just hand to me. Well, I guess she can't just hand it to me, but she could like throw it outside on the pavement and I will just go get it. Something like that. I feel like this is definitely a book that my mom has. If she doesn't have it, it's because of Marie Kondo. She definitely has read this book. I can feel it. They also brought up again Merle Tuve. He was that geophysicist that helped with engineering radio waves to become radar. You know, that super sciencey stuff that I don't understand, but I'm super glad that he understood and I'm glad that he figured it out and I've taken it for granted my entire life. That guy? Yeah, him. They brought up his dad on the historical marker too. That was Anthony Tuve, the president of Augustana College from 1890 through 1916. And unfortunately, Merle's dad, Anthony, died in the 1918 influenza epidemic. But do you guys want to guess where Merle's maternal and paternal grandparents were all born? You have a guess. What is it? Is your guess Norway? Because that's where it was. Everyone's from Norway. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of reading, I need to get my hands on some books about this Dakota boom situation. Just lightly looked into it. I see a lot of different date ranges and opinions and ideas. So I just want to dog ear that whole topic for another time and we can take a little bit of a closer look once the library is open. <laughs> okay. I've lived in two places with schools named Augustana. Augustana College in the Quad Cities and Augustana University in Sioux Falls. I learned that through this, that they are actually sister schools. It's kind of a dead-end fact. It doesn't mean anything. I don't know. Kind of interesting. 
little connection there. The main building that still stands in Canton, it's really cool looking. So if you're close to Canton and haven't seen it, just do a little little drive through and take a look. I think it has kind of like a medieval edge to it. If you were to be seeking my opinion on architecture, which doesn't happen a ton, it's actually considered Richardson Romanesque, which we learned. And I went ahead and looked it up online and yep, arched openings, mix of different stones, large scale. The one bummer is it doesn't have a bunch of turrets and corner towers like some of them do. I feel like that would have been cool, but that's just an aesthetic that I appreciate. And I have recently, on a couple walks in Sioux Falls' newer neighborhoods, I have seen new houses with turrets and I couldn't be more excited. I really want to see these come back. Just like when you see a modern craftsman, it's just exciting. I want to see where this goes. <laughs> the historical marker says building of the main structure was $48,492, and don't you dare forget those 99 cents. I looked on the Augustana University website and the comprehensive cost for tuition in 2019 through 2020 is $42,000. Well, $42,017. The old main apartments have both one and two bedroom apartments and they range from $575 to $800. They look updated. Fancy word warning, synod. An ecclesiastical governing or advisory council, such as a regional or national organization of Lutheran congregations. All right, sounds good. That explains it. Let's go ahead and wave goodbye to historical marker number 661. Wow, guys, this was a roller coaster of tic-tac-toe historical markers today. I can't believe that they're all in a row because they couldn't be less in a row topic-wise. If you're able, rate my podcast on iTunes or follow me at Local Loop Podcast on Instagram, or share this podcast with a friend. That would all make me super happy and super thankful. I want us to all keep learning together. Thank you guys for stopping by and keeping me company while I ramble on about local history that I'm learning along the way. I appreciate you guys, and I extra appreciate Claude for providing a soundtrack to my adventures. Thank you so much for the theme song, Claude. Have a great and wonderful day, guys, and see you next time on the Local Loop Podcast. Through the eyes of local